this is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Tishani Doshi, author of the novel Small Days and Nights. I think the way that a community treats its people or a country, treats all of its people, whether it's your elderly or the people who are poorer, the people who are weaker or who are sick or who can't look after themselves, that says a lot about a civilization. We'll be back with Tishani Doshi in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last six and a half years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft. It's a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and thought. Whether this is your first listening experience or you are on your 260th episode, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. As our society is changing to independent folks like me producing rich content and meaningful content like that in First Draft, I think we are evolving the model to widely expand the diversity of voices available for the public to tune into. But it takes money, time, equipment, and a lot of heart and sweat to make this content happen. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad-free and pitch-free episodes. As a thank you for your patronage, I get you to the interview faster because you'll get your own dedicated feed without this ask. Starting at just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. I'm also so grateful I often send extra goodies to my patrons. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice. I know that right now it's unlikely you are in front of a computer, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of First Draft, reminder, membership matters. Again, patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can find out more about the show at firstdraftwriters.com, and please stay tuned at the end of this episode. I'll offer recommendations on similar episodes you can dig into. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Tishani Doshi, poet, essayist, novelist, and dancer. She has published six books of poetry and fiction, including the novels The Pleasure Seekers and Small Days and Nights. She was born in Madras and lives in Tamil Nadu, India. Small Days and Nights tells the story of Grace, who was born to an Indian mother and an Italian father and grows up an only child in the mountains of India. She attends college in the United States and marries an American man she's known since childhood. After coming to an impasse on the desire for children, she doesn't want them, and her husband does, she leaves her marriage and comes back to India just after her mother's death. Grace inherits a house and land by the sea in Tamil Nadu in southern India. Upon her return, she also discovers she has an older sister, Lucia, 
with Down syndrome that she never knew about, who has been living in a special facility since she was a young child. As small days and nights unfolds, Grace decides to care for her sister and a pack of stray dogs. The two women live in an isolated property with dangers lurking, particularly from violent land sharks who are buying up homes to redevelop and are very threatening to those like Grace who don't want to sell. We began the discussion with this question. I'm kind of curious to start with the title, Small Days and Nights. You have an epigraph in the very beginning from a book by James Salter that has these this phrase in it, um, a sports and a pastime. So I'm wondering mm-hmm. how you came up with the title. And then do you feel like literature is in conversation with other literature? And was that part of it at all? You know, I always think of titles. I, I think they're very important for me. And whenever I've written a book, I've generally had the title, you know, before I've started writing or quite soon after. So it's a container in which I then know I'm going to put all this energy and thought and craft. And and so with this novel, it was very strange because I worked on it for a few years, obviously, and I didn't have a title until I'd written it. And it was making me very uncomfortable because without the title, it didn't feel like it was real. And um and I think I tried, I don't know, I had several working titles and I would wake up in the middle of the night and say to my husband, do you think this is a good title? And, you know, I was getting so obsessed with the title. And then I was reading this this book, A Sport and a Pastime, and I came across that line, it's in the little towns that one discovers a country in the kind of knowledge that comes from small days and nights. And immediately I felt that I was sort of the title just I just extracted it from that line because that was what I was writing about in a way and it encompassed so beautifully so many of the things that I was trying to do with the book so yes I do think that literature it is it is a conversation that we have with with other writers dead and alive and it's just you know I always think of it as a kind of seance that you can call upon these people at at different times in your career and at different stages and some travel with you always and some are you know more at a different time you need a different kind of writer a different voice and and all of that is okay and I think that's the wonderfully enlarging capacity that literature has. When you started this, you know, you didn't have a title, which I could see how could it could put it in a small container for you. So it seems like you probably started writing based on instinct or urges or things you wanted to explore. So what, what kind of things were nagging at you that you wanted to get on a page? I think my impulses were, 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 Manifold. I mean, I had the idea to tell a story about sisters and secrets and families. And um, I also wanted to have um, this sense of an immediate story about a woman in India at this particular time and the choices that she might have to make between freedom and duty. So in a way, it's also a kind of a moral story. She's sort of struggling with um, her situation. But I also wanted to tell a larger story somehow in a way that, you know, um, what about these lives that are lived on the margins in the small places? Because so much of the literature coming out of India and out of most places is to do with, you know, the the 
big city bright lights narrative and and um and it's a very exciting story the the big city story but what about this other movement um the the other way and 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 can that also represent a story about nation and country and people and so it was really sort of trying to tell this one very small story um but to see whether it could extend into larger ideas so it was complicated because in a way it was also a story about women um and this sense of visibility and invisibility and fear and so many things that i was trying to write about um because i had spent so much time in in the particular landscape that i write about and i was so and i am continue to be so struck by that beauty of that place but also how the effects of solitude um you know what what happens to a person in that kind of isolation uh, particularly a woman how does that affect your imagination your psyche your sense of safety your sense of self where do you find your community if your family um lets you down or or is not available or you know in this case in in my story uh, it's just non-existent do you know and so you're trying to create that sense of support and community um but you have none of the familiar um ropes to hold on to. So when the book opens, we meet Grace and Grace was born of an Italian father and an Indian mother and grew up in basically in the mountains in India and is privileged. She goes to private school and she ends up going to North Carolina for college. She had fallen in love with a white boy that she knew from high school who lived in India and then they went to similar colleges in in the states and she ends up marrying him and then basically they have a disagreement on wanting to have kids she doesn't want them and then her mother dies um her parents have long since divorced her dad is in italy and she goes back to india where her mom died and finds out she inherited a house and a sister with down syndrome that she never knew about so here she is in her 30s i believe Mm-hmm. and and opening up to this new reality. And I think one of the first lines is return is never the experience you hope for. And it's so true because it it's really a lot about how you can never go back um cuz time changes everything. But I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about sort of the the actual plot and and the idea of return. Yeah, it's something that's really fascinated me for a long time this question of belonging and our idea of home and what happens when you leave home and when you go away somewhere to make your life and then every time you come back there's this sense of the intruder but also the familiar intruder because you know this place it sort of reminds you of of the, what you left behind but it's not quite the same and in the case of Grace of course her mother is is dead and she she finds out that she has this the strange weighty inheritance of a house by the sea and and the sister and she has to decide what she wants to do with this information with this knowledge and for me it was really the sense of what does it mean to rediscover your country after having been away for a while but also your sense of self and your sense of family um everything has changed you know and so that was really the the impulse of the of the story and personally for me i think because i've lived um i've lived in india most of my life but i've had 8 years or so away 
those those years when you go, I've always thought of it as this sort of magic circle when you leave. And then when you enter, it can never quite be the same because you've been away, you've you've looked at that place that you used to inhabit with different eyes, different experiences. And so it's a very um, disconcerting experience. And at the same time, it can feel um, wonderfully comforting as well to come back. And so there's a slight tug of war that happens in terms of the emotional, um, I guess, relationship um, to place and how those things change. And, and, and throughout the book, I really um, had this idea of what does it mean to be someone also like Grace, who is you know, um, hybrid in a sense with the Italian father and the Indian mother who's lived in America, who's come back. And how does her sense of belonging and identity um, work to make her the kind of person she is? And then to choose to live in, you know, um, a very rural coastal village where she's quite isolated. What what impact does that have on on a person? Yeah, I felt like she was always straddling these different worlds and and often there were diametrically opposed. You know, she she broke up with her husband for many reasons, but one was that she didn't have want to have children and then she basically inherits this sister with down syndrome, so it's like being a mother. She lives mm-hmm. in a in a poor world, but she has resources. She mm-hmm. she is Italian and Indian and also has like some sensibilities of being American, but she's also living in a very traditional village. So mm-hmm. it, it's interesting. I'm sure for fiction it's interesting to put that inherent tension in, but it also for me really went back to this idea that you that you touched on of, of loneliness and isolation and where do you belong and do we ever belong anywhere yeah and i think it's something that a lot of people can connect with because people are on the move so much even you know in india the stories of migration and and, and it doesn't even have to be such an exotic combination as indian and italian you know it could just be that you go from the east of the country to the capital or you go from the south to the north and and these movements are happening uh, not just in india but obviously all across the world and and there's also this very interesting i think dynamic between people who inherently feel like they have a birthright to a certain place, who feel that they belong, and then who can sort of reject the other people, the outsiders. And and, and there is this them versus us dynamic. And, and I'm interested in that, that sort of friction between people who think they belong and the people who want to belong, but who struggle to. And I feel like we're all moving in a sense. And and the idea of belonging is also, um, you know, I don't know. I think uh, it's, it's, it's mysterious why anybody would feel that they belong to a place unless they had a deep connection to land. And, and so all of these things come into it. And, and you're right to point out the, the class, caste, privilege, um, you know, um, difference, because that is also something the, you know, the, the body of a woman and the way that she moves through the world as someone like Grace does with, with her privilege, with her money, with her status, and some, maybe a village, a, a village woman is not going to be the same because they, 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 you know, 
haven't started out in life with the same um, resources. And so she has a greater freedom, but she still struggles to fit in. And so she goes to the city and she wants to sort of have some release and she has friends that she can get drunk with and just, you know, try to talk about whatever. And she finds dissatisfaction in that because there's a certain vapid nature of conversation you know and then she comes back and she feels alienated so I really wanted to play with that in the story to to heighten that because I do think that people um, suffer from loneliness and and suffer from feeling a sense of of belonging and finding community um, and so this is in that sense a universal story. You have one line that to me even though it's so much about this story is so much about people and family and, and commitments and, you know, what we choose to take on in, you have a line on page 202 and it says, I cannot imagine the security of being born in a place and knowing it to be mine. And for me, that one line sort of encapsulated the whole book. Mm. You know, I think the, the only, um, people I think who like sort of indigenous people who have um, had this story I've always been amazed kind of power you know uh, wherever in the world I've been and 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 listen to those stories that is a extremely powerful connection that goes back a long time and it has connection to particular land and landscape um, and and it's very very rooted and I'm so in awe of that because I do think that there is an incredible power in that but I think like with other narratives with the city narratives when you have we are also incredibly restless as human beings we you know we it's encoded in our DNA to move and I think that's also been a very human story so I'm just interested in that juxtaposition of that incredible rootedness, um, which can be beautiful, but can also have, um, you know, obviously, as we've seen in, in 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 all the countries across the world, a very sort of ugly side of nationalism. That sense of this belongs to us, not you. You get you you know who gets to 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 belong to a place. That story is also interesting to me, and 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 I would say that in my own personal experience. I have always struggled um, with that sense of belonging. I've always been in awe of of that sense of surety that anybody could have um, with any place because I've I've always been fleetingly, uh, I've always had fleeting senses of being at home, you know, and they've been in different parts of the world and suddenly you feel, oh, um, everything fits and 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 then it, it it quickly goes, you know. So I'm always that that position of the outsider is something that I know very well. It's manifest in your book because where she is on the sea, it seems like she she has a lot of land and she can walk from from her house to the beach. It seems like it's right there. I mean, it's a bit of a walk, but it's all connected. And one of the threats mm-hmm. in the book is that there's all these land sharks that are getting violent to take over the villagers' land to build new housing. And you see that threat everywhere. And so that is sort of the violence of, like, there's real physical violence threats, but it's also kind of the violence of, of place and takeover and, and colonialism in different forms. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's really um, 
a story that's been unfolding in India for a while. And this, again, this sort of um, move uh, of, of people uh, from villages into cities, but also uh, for, for, you know, land sharks or, or, you know, deciding that you want to put a coal plant uh, in this place, the government and other people have the kind of power to take over land from people who have been occupying that land for a long time uh, for very little money or, the, you know, they, they bulldoze them out of places. And so um, that was definitely something that I wanted to to write about in a tangential way, that, that sense of a, a threat, you know, uh, this land that you have, uh, how long can you hold on to it? And um, how will you manage to... I guess um, keep it if there's this constant, constantly somebody there trying to take it away to build, you know, these big uh, gated communities or 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 whatever it might be. Um, and that's a very real story in India. So large tracts of agricultural land are being taken over for other purposes, and 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 this is something that I wanted to write about as well. And it's Grace is wrestling with all this just by simply going home and, and living in this beautiful house where all this is going around her. Yeah. She also has to reckon with the fact that she's a sister she never knew about who's older than her, who has Down syndrome, who's been in a home ever since she was a young girl. And yeah. her mom used to disappear on Thursdays and go visit her, but she never knew that growing up. They've never breathed a word of the sister. So she also has to reckon with this past that wasn't transparent to her and what she wants to do with that. Yeah, I really wanted to write about, I guess, the role of caregiving and what does it mean um, to to fill that role, you know, and how to do that also in a country where it's quite difficult for anyone who's differently abled. And it was very difficult for me to find a balance because I didn't want to send, you know, I didn't want it to be sentimental, the sense that she finds the sister and then every, all this feeling of being lost goes away and that she, she finds this role of nurturing, uh, sustaining her somehow, because I know that that is not the experience of caregiving and that it can fill you with a lot of joy, but it's also extremely draining and difficult and frustrating. And so I wanted to really be honest about, um, what that experience might be, but I also thought that it was a moral question and that she decides to do something um, her parents made this decision and that was their decision. But now that she knows, Grace decides that she wants to do the other thing. And the other thing is to change her life and to say that this person is my blood and I'm going to look after her. And, you know, she struggles. It's, it's, it's a very difficult relationship in a way. But in a way, it's also, um, I think and hope towards the end of the book, you get a sense that she's arrived at a newer understanding of herself, you know, um, because I do think that I think the way that a community treats um, its people or a country treats all of its people, whether it's your elderly or the people who are poorer, or the people who are weaker or who are sick or who can't look after themselves, that says a lot about a civilization, you know, and so that was also one of the things I was thinking about in the book, that idea of um, how, again, when the system is not strong enough, how do we then create our own communities uh, to live in a way that we deem 
um, okay, you know, or that we can manage and, and we say that this, this is how I would like to, to do it. For me, I thought a lot about what are we judged by because we are um, a sum of all of our parts and it's hard to say who we are. And on one hand, she's trying to figure out, you know, her parents, their marriage, why they did this. But then she's also taking it on and she takes the sister out of a home she's been living in with other children and adults like her with teachers and brings Mm -hmm. her to her home and she cares for her, but she also has moments of of violence towards her or neglect Mm. towards her. It just makes me think about like how it'd be easy to pass judgment, but it's none of that is easy. Yeah. And and that's why I wanted to to create this sense of tension. Also, this idea of thinking, you know, when we did make a decision thinking that, okay, this is the right thing to do. This is the morally right thing to do. And then not taking on board the sense of the enormity of the task, you know, and like Grace is someone who didn't want to have children because precisely because of that, because it was terrifying to her and she didn't want it. But then when this came to her, this news of the sister, and she had sort of grown up as an only child and always felt the lack of, you know, having somebody to to witness or share the story with, she, she decides that she's going to make this uh, change in her life. And she struggles with it in a very, very difficult way. And and she comes out as, you know, there are moments that are really not pretty and that are quite uh, confronting. And I think that I wanted to, to do that because it felt to me that um, this is the this is the real truth about um, what it means to be a caregiver, that it's not just one one sort of one-dimensional uh, graph that goes up, you know, that it is an up and down thing and, and that it constantly has to be negotiated. And I think primarily what I come to the conclusion is that you also need community to help you through, that it is not a task that a person can actually do by themselves, you know? Um, that whole thing that you need a village and 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 it really is is um to me it feels that that to take something like that upon yourself is going to result in um in in real difficulty so she eventually i think finds the people who are going to help support her you know but it takes a while yeah it does take a while because i think you know her community of people that she goes when she goes to the city in madras are as you said they're vapid they're they're very privileged um i feel like they just can't they can only relate they only kind of operate on one register where she's trying to also deal with her village and deal with her sister and then the village that she's surrounded by there's so many class differences and because she has money there's a man running for office and they always want money that the school always wants money. You know, she has gardeners come in and she struggles with how much to pay them. So she's, she really is more isolating, even though there's these communities around her. It's really about finding your place and trying to, to sort of um, get strength from that. And eventually I suppose that for Grace, it's, it's, quite an uphill thing she has this garden she has these dogs these beach dogs that she then becomes a carer for as well she has her sister and um, she's trying to you know 
also live and she's a young woman so she she has a relationship which is you know so all these things it's how to juggle all of that and 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 really trying to depict the struggle um because between an individual personal life and then the whole society surrounding her whether that's the society of the city with the privileged urban you know people or the people in the village who have a, a very different set of issues and problems and that she can't actually relate to um, or that she can't actually um, get involved with because she has to retain some sense of her space in all of that. The scenes when she's in the city were not, they were sparse in the book. They were not like the main part of the book, but I found mm-hmm. them so interesting Partly, I guess, because in my 20s, I spent a lot of time in India and the modernization that you include, it's so fascinating to me how they're, you know, the clothes that that they're wearing that seem more Western to me that in the early 90s, I didn't see as much of in in India and Mm. sort of the the way that the upper class moves through this modern world with a more traditional and maybe religious India in the background and those those maybe dichotomies existing. I'm wondering if you could just talk about that a little. And maybe it's not something you notice because you live there. But do you kind of know what I'm talking about? Of course, yeah. I mean, sort of we had a huge um, change of everything in the mid-90s with the opening up of the economy and then, you know, cable TV and the internet, all of that happened in the mid nineties and the whole country transformed in the sense of um, there was this being closed in before and this, this huge opening up and opening up what, you know, and, and completely a shift from sort of socialist model to a very consumerist capitalist model. And so in a way, I mean, when I moved back to India in 2000, it was such an exciting time to be back because it felt like there were so many opportunities and so much available, so much information, uh, so much more connection to the rest of the world. But also you understood that with all of that, there's this rapid vanishing of other things, you know? Um, and, And so the way that you know, people uh, talk, dress, move through the world, it changes when you have that kind of access. And so one of the really interesting things I think about being in India and living there is that you're constantly rubbing up against these juxtapositions. You're constantly having to regard on one hand this and on the other hand that. And it's it's very, um, it's a very powerful country in that because no matter how much things change, there's also a great sense of continuity, a great sense of things having been done in a particular way for a long time. And so you'll always, you know, you always just see these scenes which are so strange. Like you'll see a, you know, a temple priest uh, dressed very traditionally, uh, driving a moped and holding his cell phone and having a conversation, which brings together the sacred and the secular, the you know the the, the sort of traditional and the modern. And there's all this always around, I think, in India. And and um, I think that that particularly again uh, the divide between the urban and the rural is very different because obviously these things take longer to reach the village. Um, and, and India is a lot of village, you know, it's, it's it's a huge population of people who are who live in villages. But then you have this this sort of urban concentration 
of of people from everywhere coming from all over the country trying to live this particular life and and all of those desires those aspirations you know there's just so many so many stories and so many images and i i think that when you're writing um a story set in india it's inevitable that those things come into play you know contemporary story because um they're they're everywhere you just walk through the streets and you see it one of the things that i found and and it's in your book too so interesting and full of contradictions is the role of women i mean india has had female prime ministers you see mm. women leaders but then the role of women in villagers is it doesn't seem to be advancing there's there's a scene in the book when Grace is in high school and they're camping with Blake her her future husband mm-hmm. and his family and a violent act co- kind of tears through the campground and and she wasn't really sure what it was but when she looked in the paper it looked like there was a marriage between an upper caste and lower caste man and woman that created riots and this is you know this is there's also some of that you know the shadow of that in this novel yeah i mean that uh, goes on every day in the papers there are stories of this kind of violence because of the intercaste uh, love story or marriage or what have you and there is also um the general statistic that india is one of the most dangerous places for a woman to live for a variety of reasons you know the acid attacks rape um, so many so many uh things uh that that we could point to female infanticide feticide all of that and yet um the story of women in india is i think one of the most remarkable stories because right now at the moment we are having these huge protests in india um against the government's new citizenship act and one of the most heartening things has been to see how visible women have been particularly muslim women and they've been like staging protests and they've been on the streets in in, in horribly cold delhi winter and just standing their ground and 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 this huge um outpouring of you know political will uh by women and and student leaders and and, and there it's just such a moment of um you know it's it's awe inspiring and it's wonderful because you you see that it's women who are leading this revolution in a way so again that juxtaposition of how in this very patriarchal um, country where it is in fact dangerous to be a woman you see women making acts uh, on a daily basis which are heroic and and i think there is this you know you have to put these things side by side and 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 i wonder how does that happen where do they get this strength from how do they how do they think they can do this and yet they're doing it all the time you know i i wondered about what is the societal gaze on you as a family when you have a down syndrome baby and they the book doesn't get into it that much in terms of you know some of the reasons why they gave up Lucia the the sister mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. when Grace takes her back in she does have a line about how angry it makes um her to see how people look at her and and what is it like for her status to have this sister is something i wondered and i'm wondering if you mm-hmm. could talk about that and then just like writing Lucia's character it was very difficult for me to write Lucia's character because she's not particularly she doesn't have great verbal skills so it's very limited we don't get a sense of there's a lot of mystery around her i think 
everyone in the book is a sort of quite flawed character and and she is presented as um not in a way because we know we don't really get inside her it's difficult to know her but she represents something somehow and i feel that it was for me i think i mean the gaze is intense if you've been to india you know that people the, the gaze is very strong people stare i stare all the time at people we look at 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 um everyone at everything and unabashedly so and then i think when we see something that we've not where we're not used to seeing you know there's not a high visibility of um uh, of uh, of differently able people and so when you do come across uh someone and there's this real um you know it's it's really unnerving um uh, because people haven't seen it and so they don't know how to react and i think um because i i have uh, my brother has down syndrome and so i grew up with this and it's really was something i think quite damaging because you want to obviously be protective over um you know uh your loved ones your family and you realize that uh that uh people just don't have the access or the information and and that's changed of course uh a, a decent amount over the years but not enough to to say that oh you know do we have wheelchair accessible places or do we have uh, you know if you, if 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 people are 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 blind uh is there a way for them to access their way about and and you know again as i was saying before it's like how do we treat our our people our citizens how do we um um make things for them when i look at india i would say that it's not a country that particularly provides um and so it's quite harsh in that sense if if you are a family um and if you do have someone with special needs or or any of that so it's very much you know fend for yourself um and what what support is given is very limited was there anything precarious at all or did you have to talk to your parents at all about just writing about a down syndrome character um no i i i actually was you know the the reason i wrote my story was because i i remember reading uh an article about arthur miller and his wife inga morath and and they had a son with down syndrome in the 60s uh daniel and they institutionalized him and i remember reading this story and just i think that's where one of the sort of um um ideas for the novel came just wondering again what what would it be to discover that you had a um a sibling you know that you never knew about because i grew up with a brother with down syndrome and we were the opposite kind of family in that my you know he was always present at everything my parents take him everywhere we always were very open and visible about it and and i and and he's such a big part of our life and and how i understand the world um that i try to imagine what it might be to have the other experience and again not to judge because in the 60s that's what people did you know uh you were recommended to institutionalize children and and there was again the sense of information and what what one must do so it was not to be judgy about any decision that anyone makes but just to say what is the potential of finding out this possible relationship of a sibling that you, you you didn't know that you had and how can that change you because i really think um and one of just to connect with one of the other things that i write about i talk about how you know in the future we, you know this this whole idea of the designer baby the baby that's born in the petri dish with all the right 
uh, all the right things, you know, the right genes, the best genes. And I, I say, and still we will fall short. And I think that my basic premise is that we're humans and, and we will fall short. And and the idea of perfection, of the sense of the superhuman being, that is hubristic and that is a wrong idea. You know, that is not um, what it's about. What's about is how do you make love? How do you create love? How do you um, how do you manage with with um, with what you have, and how do you become better as a result of it? And I really think that um, the experience for me personally has been a sense of enlarging the world. You know, growing up with my brother, it enlarged my sensitivity, my sense of the world, and the idea of um, getting rid of what we think of as flaws is hubristic because other things will 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 pull us down you know and so so that's kind of one of the things that i wanted to do in the book is to to put across actually to not take away from the fact that it is difficult and it is hard to be a caregiver but to say that that is what humans do in a way that we are capable of looking after people and that is an amazing thing I studied religion in college and I studied a lot of Buddhism and Hinduism, which is what brought me to India in the first place. And something that really obsessed me when I went, and please, if this seems like an ignorant question, please tell me. But one of the things that was really interesting to me, sort of underlying everything, was the concept of karma. And Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if that is something that, I don't know if it's like that you think about, but do you think that there's an element of that that underlines society or is it only in certain religious parts? I think the element of karma is something that's very ingrained. I think people do think about it, but I also feel that there's a lot of inventive imagination about how we interpret these things. So, you know, um, for instance, the treatment of animals, you know, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, all of these religions are very clear on on how uh, we are meant to cohabit with other creatures, and definitely uh, that sense of nonviolence or kindness is 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 very much a part of that. Um, and you'll see that also on streets in India. You know, I I always am amazed by the sturdiness of these Indian dogs, for example, who you know will befriend um, you know somebody who lives on the street basically, and they'll share food together and they have this lovely relationship. But then you also have these unimaginable acts of cruelty where people are cruel to animals just because they can be, and they just. They, they derive some kind of horrible pleasure from it. And there are those stories as well. And you think, well, where is that coming from? And and these things happen together, you know? Um, so I do think that that a sense of, of um, I guess, duty, karma, action is part of um, the, the general thought, but obviously not everybody um, follows it. Can you read a passage from an author that influenced you as a writer? Sure. It's one of those things that's quite hard to, because it could be one writer today and another writer in about 10 minutes, because there are so many. I, I, 
I have a lot of writers that I love, but I just thought I would choose um, a poet, if that's okay. Of course. Yeah. So this is actually an American poet called Bob Hickok, whom I discovered a few years ago. And um, I don't know, there's something about his work. Uh, it's very interesting to me. I write a lot about being a woman, and I think Bob Hickok writes a lot about being a man and, and, and masculinity. And I'm so intrigued by that because I feel like I don't get to read enough about that and, and I want to know more about it. So that's why I love his work because he really um, goes into that. But he's also somebody who's quite funny and surreal and manages to encapsulate, I think, the really absurd condition of being human. Um, so he's one of my favorite poets. And I think I've, I, I think I take something from him, although we have very different styles of writing. But anyway, I'll just read uh, this short poem, and it's called Leave a Message. And this is from his collection, Elegy Ode, published by Copper Canyon Press. When the wind died, there was a moment of silence for the wind. When the maple tree died, there was always a place to find winter in its branches. When the roses died, I respected the privacy of the vase. When the shoe factory died, I stopped listening at the black back door to the glossolalia of machines. When the child died, the mother put a spoon in the blender. When the child died, the father dug a hole in his thigh and got in. When my dog died, I broke up with the woods. When the fog lived, I went into the valley to be held by water. The dead have no ears, no answering machines that we know of. Still, we call. Is there anything else you want to say about that? Yeah, this collection, Elegy Ode, is, is an older collection, and, and they're all um, uh, this sort of curious mixture of the elegy and the ode, very two different types of, of, of poems, one of praise and one of, of, um, of, you know, of lament. And again, I think for me, uh, what I love about Bob Hickok's writing is that he manages to bring these juxtapositions, these, these, these things together that we don't expect. And, 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 and that's what I love about that writing, because I think that's what I'm trying to do in all of my work as well, um, is to try and bring together these things that you wouldn't expect to see together or these things that you're trying to balance and to really hold that human condition in all of its absurdity, that, that capacity for beauty, but also the capacity for violence that we have. And, and, and I think it's rare to be able to do that uh, with a sense of feeling um, and also sometimes with a sense of humor. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. It's hard because I had so many drafts, but I'll just read a small little piece from the middle of the book. And it's a scene when Grace goes out to the beach and she sees these two young um, men, boys, approach from the village. And um, she st she feels threatened by them. And it was hard for me to write the scene because, again, it's really tricky to navigate that sense of what is fear and what is imagined fear. And I think for women, it's really hard because we are so uh, designed and and sort of trained to watch out for fear, you know. And 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 it's 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 almost as if 
there's no difference after a while of what we perceive and what is real because we have to protect ourselves, you know? So this is just a, a short scene on the beach where these young men sit beside her and they're looking at her in a way that's making her uncomfortable. I walk towards them and slide my feet into my slippers. They are still staring at me. What? I bark. What are you looking at? What do you want? Not enough beach for you. You have to come and sit right here. I know they don't understand what I'm saying, but I can only say it in English because the few Tamil words I know have disappeared. It's a fear that's jerking around inside me. I'm telling myself it's only the stories I've been reading in the news lately. All those girls and women raped and dumped and hanging from trees. It's Malika's penis worshipping the puppies that's bothering me, the bloody propagation of patriarchy by women in this country. I'm telling myself that I'm strong. I'm standing outside my own house. The dogs are here. It's daylight. Nothing is going to happen. But I'm a quivering mess by the time I get to the gate. The dogs whisk through, shaking the sand off their coats. I latch the gate and I run up the stone path to the house. And by the time I get to my room and lock the door, I'm weeping. Do you want to say anything more about that? It's something that I wanted to work into the book, this sense of an underlying menace and threat. And really, it was hard to get the voice right because I wanted it to not be exaggerated and not to be unbelievable. But I also wanted it to be unsettling, you know, um, that sense of if you're alone um, and you're like in, in cities, I think we have a sense of safety because of numbers. We're surrounded by people, even though there's great loneliness, but you feel, you know, you're, you're, you're close to so many other human bodies. And then when you're out of that, when you're in this isolation, uh, to come across a kind of potentially conflicting situation, I wanted to really capture that sense of dread, that sense of even in outside your house, even when you have dogs, even all of that, how a person, a woman can feel this enormous threat to self and how that is a real threat because, um, of course, because of the stories, because of the statistics and all of that. Um, and how even uh, if it's not real, even if it's just two guys sitting on the beach, how that can actually be construed as something potentially threatening. And, 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 and so really this question of how to navigate that fear to not be cowed down by it, to continue to live, continue to stride out, um, but also to be aware of the potential dangers. So all of those things, you know, just trying to hit that sense of what it means to move through the world with this particular anatomy. What does it mean to move through the world knowing that you are, you know, possibly in danger and, and, and how, to, how to do that uh, without losing your mind, I guess. Where do you write? So I write everywhere. It depends uh, where I am. A lot of the times I write, I write a lot at home in India, um, but I, I'm teaching at the moment at NYU in Abu Dhabi. So I'm writing there. Um, I'll write on a train. I'll write on a plane. Um, possibly the one place that I don't write is in a cafe. I, I like to be in a room with the door closed. I don't like to write in public so much unless I have, you know, uh, no choice, like a like a transportation or something moving. But uh, otherwise, my preference is to, to write in a place where I can close the door and, and be in, in a place by myself. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? 
I don't like to get away from writing. I like to go to a place where I can get into writing. I feel that I have a lot of um, parts of my life where I'm not writing because I'm living and it usually involves traveling and being in a place and sometimes it's hard to to have space to write, but I'm always reading and then taking notes and that's part of the writing process as well. But I, I, I never actually feel the need to go away from writing, always the other way around. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Um, I show my work uh, to my husband and I have a, two writer friends whose um, opinion I value a lot. And and then I'll show it to an agent, to my agent. But I think my husband is the first person. He's a writer as well. I work in one room. He works in the other. And so I often will send him something and, you know, like to have a quick feedback just to know if I'm on the right track. And And he's a pretty, um, you know, he's he's quite ruthless, I suppose, in his judgment. So I appreciate that. How have you dealt with rejection? Rejection is part of life and particularly part of a writer's life. I think you're always amazed when somebody takes up your work and doesn't reject it. You know, you feel so um, I don't know, that sense of being brought into a community of writers. Um, so so it's a wonderful feeling not to be rejected, but I would say that rejection is more the powerful course. And so at some point you you develop um, a bit of a thick skin and, and, and just say, well, you know, keep, keep trucking. What is your favorite word? So a word that I like is obfuscate. I think it sounds like what it means, which is to bewilder and to confuse. And I, I, I like, I just like the sound of it. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'm so appreciative. Thank you so much, Missy. This has been wonderful. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Tashani Doshi, author of Small Days and Nights. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Anuradha Roy, author of Sleeping on Jupiter. We talked about fictionalizing place, friendship, and religion in India. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 250 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and transcripts. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Some clips from this month's interviews that patrons will receive as extras include Luke Geddes talking about plot versus character, Jill Cement sharing her experience writing a novel with Amy Hempel, Julia Phillips discussing who she is writing for, and Dashani Doshi sharing how the India she sees every day is reflected in her fiction. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Jenny O'Phil, Kevin Wilson, Chuck Palahniuk, Anne Enright, and Sahar Mustafa. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft, a dialogue on writing, a reality every week. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.